Gosh, I was just reminded of something from my high school years with that song. You know, I haven't always been the saint that you know me to be. (laughs) And I remember, I'll bet your moms, some of you, if you grew up in a Christian home, may have said something like this, mom would challenge me on a certain behavior or a certain attitude, and her words were, is that what you want to be doing or saying when Jesus returns? (laughs) Some of you heard that from your mom. I used to just hate that. But you know, there's wisdom in that. You know, the the longing that the early church had for the return of Jesus, the certainty with which they lived, thinking that, you know, he was coming soon. And, uh, boy, I know that that just is lagging in my own life. And, And I don't know about you, brothers and sisters, but living, and and again, maybe not so much an emphasis on what we shouldn't be doing as opposed to how we ought to be living in terms of God as, as the focus of our life. Well, there's, there's uh, certainly some of that in our text this morning. You know, for years, I have toyed with this idea of keeping a notepad and a pencil on my nightstand beside my bed. You know, because I've, I've heard of folks who do that so that when they, they wake up in the night, you know, if there's a, a thought, an inspirational moment, you know, a revelation of some kind, they, they jot it down so they don't forget. It's always seemed like such a great idea. I've never done it. There's a couple of reasons for that. I rarely wake up in the night. My wife will tell you, you know, head hits the pillow. It's like a stone until the alarm goes off, pretty much. When I do wake up in the night, it's not for inspirational moments. (laughs) Just saying. However, there have been, on occasion, there have been some times when I have woken up. And it's the weirdest thing. You know, it'll be... It'll be three in the morning and I just find myself awake. And, and then, then I lay there and I think to myself, could this be one of those inspirational times? And why have I been so lazy as to not put that notepad and that pen on my nightstand next to me? But I don't think that for long because I usually fall back asleep. No inspirations. No great dreams. I tell you that because N.T. Wright tells this story in his book, Simply Christian. He says, I had a dream the other night, a powerful and interesting dream. And the really frustrating thing is that I can't remember what it was about. My wife dreams in technicolor, I'm convinced. Uh, She just has these detailed, amazing dreams. But I can relate. They, they say we dream. I, I, supposedly I dream. Everybody dreams is, is what the world of, of research tells us. I don't remember a thing. So, N.T. Wright has this extraordinary dream. Couldn't remember what it was about. Then he says, I had a flash of it as I woke up. Enough to make me think how extraordinary and meaningful it was. And then it was gone. He goes on to say this. I think our passion for justice... A world where things are right. Our passion for that often seems 
like that fleeting dream. We dream the dream of justice. We glimpse for a moment a world at one, a world put to rights, a world where things work out, where societies function fairly and efficiently, people get along, and then we wake up and we come back to reality. Wright believes that the longing for justice comes with what he calls the kit of being human. Such a a great English-ism. Unfortunately, though, we strive for justice no matter how hard we often fail to achieve it. He says, you know, you fall off your bicycle and you break a leg, you go to the hospital and they fix it. You stagger around on crutches for a while, then rather gingerly you start to walk normally again. There is such a thing as putting something to rights, as in fixing it, as, as in getting it back on track. You can fix a broken leg, a broken toy, a broken television, so why can't we fix injustice? It isn't for lack of trying says Wright. Yet in spite of failures to fix injustice, we keep dreaming that one day all things will be set right. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Wright contends this. He says, believers, Christians believe that this is so because all humans have heard deep within themselves the echo of a voice which calls us to live with those dreams that things can be right. And followers of Christ believe that in Jesus, that voice became human and did what had to be done to bring it about. I love that. And in this this week's reading, if you're keeping up with our sprint through the New Testament in these 40 days, we read Matthew's Gospel and we were introduced to a phrase spoken often by Jesus in that Gospel. Kingdom of God. Kingdom of, of heaven. Important terms to Matthew and his understanding of, of who Jesus was. And I think that in Matthew's heart, there was that longing that Wright refers to as that echo of a voice which calls us to live that place, that world where things are right. Finally, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Those two phrases, one or the other, are spoken by Jesus in Matthew's record a total of over 40 times. Yeah, that's an average if we were reading a New Testament during this 40-day journey that had chapter titles. That's an average of about one and a half times per chapter that Jesus refers to the kingdom. And you don't have to read far into Matthew's gospel to realize that it's very Jewish. Matthew and his, his intended reading audience was the Jews. And, and he begins with a Jewish genealogy, and, and then he, he, he places Jesus clearly in the lineage of King David. And then comes the birth of Jesus, followed immediately with big trouble for the Jews, having to do with Herod and the visit of the Magi. This, this just jumped out at me this week. So familiar, and yet, I just never had seen it like this. Matthew places Jesus in that line of King David. Herod, at the time of Jesus' birth, 
was the king of the Jews. Now, that was more of a self-proclaimed title. The Jews hated Herod. The Magi arrived in Jerusalem, the city of the ancient kings of Judah. And what was the question, do you remember, that the Magi asked? Where is the one who was born king of the Jews? And then Matthew records these words. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. (laughs) Yeah, read psychotic. Read serial killer. His history is ugly. He was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. No kidding. In our house, we used to say, if the mama ain't happy, then nobody happy. Well, in Jerusalem and Judea, if Herod wasn't happy, nobody was happy. And so he told the Magi, you remember the story? Oh, well, when you find him, come and tell me where he is so that I can go and worship too. Well, the Magi had no clue, but God came to them in a dream and warned them, don't go back to that old fox, go home a different way. And so they did, and when Herod, of course, found out that he had been tricked by the Magi, he was so angry. And he ordered all of the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, two years old and younger, to be killed. Horrible evil. Horrible evil. And it occurred to me, Matthew begins his gospel by demonstrating right off the bat the tension that exists between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. The spiritual battle between right and wrong, good and evil, God's kingdom represented by Jesus, the newly born king, versus the king of the world represented by Herod. But it doesn't end there. Matthew fast forwards 30 years in just a matter of a page or two to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist goes around preaching what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Then he baptizes Jesus. The baptism of Jesus is immediately followed. Is this all familiar? You read this this week, right, in in Matthew? Yeah, good, good. I, I thought I saw all those heads nodding with understanding. And so Jesus then into the wilderness, led by the Holy Spirit, to be tempted by Satan. The battle lines are clearly drawn between God's kingdom and the world's kingdom, between good and evil. John the Baptist is then put in prison, and Jesus begins his ministry, which Matthew describes this way. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then Matthew records Jesus calling his first followers, going throughout Galilee, teaching and healing followed by the Sermon on the Mount, which I have always considered to be the Magna Carta of the kingdom of God. Matthew's record of the kingdom of God is a clear presentation of kingdoms in conflict. Jesus presents and lives out the values of the kingdom of God so that that a stark contrast is created with the kingdom of God this world, the world in which we live on a daily basis. One commentator says that Matthew is urging upon us 
the sense that there is a great disjunction between heaven and earth, between God's way of doing things and ours. There is a standing tension between God and humanity. And the assumption that underlies all of Jesus' life and teaching is that those who are his followers, those who repent and follow after him and embrace the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, they are people who are going to live in such a way that the difference is noticeable in the world in which they live. Their value system is different. In other words, it's not business as usual. And we must hear all that Jesus has to say about the kingdom of God and and heaven through those words that he begins his ministry with, repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. The word repent literally means to go the opposite direction. 180 degrees. Stop where you're at, go no further, turn around, and go the other way. That's really the the root of that the Greek word that, that we translate repentance. It means change your course, and there's an urgency about it. So, doing things a little differently this morning. I hope it doesn't rock anybody's world. We're going to have you talk about something before we read the scriptures. Usually we, we do it the other way, but you know, I don't think faith will be lost over this. I was a little shook up as, it, you know, as I considered it, but we're going to do it anyway. So, can we put our question up, Rachel? What kinds of things might the Jews have associated with the word kingdom? It was a more familiar word to them, certainly, than it is to us. Kingdoms were in, in that day. So what kinds of things might the Jews have associated with the word kingdom? What did it represent to them? Ask your neighbor, or a couple of neighbors. See what they think. Okay, we ready? So what do you think? What did your neighbor have to say? And then your neighbor can tell on you what you had to say. What did, what did they hear? What did it mean to them? The word kingdom. Yeah, yeah. more than likely, that, that, was, that was a huge piece of what they, what they heard, what they, what they wanted out of that word. No doubt, no doubt. What else? What else? It was their rightful place. It was their rightful place. Okay. They, they knew for centuries. They were God's chosen people. Yeah. Yeah, this is our city. This is the city of our kings. Yeah, our history. Good. What else? I'll bet that was a part of it. Very reasonable. Very reasonable. Some of the, some of the miraculous stories that were a part of their history. Such a great point. Yes. And do you remember why? Do you remember why they asked for a king? So that we can be like the other nations. And God just went, oh, what have I done? Good, good, good. There was another hand here somewhere. Did I miss someone? Oh, boy. Didn't they, though? <clears throat> Wrestling with the fact that there are others who, who are now part of, of God's plan. Good stuff. Good comments. <clears throat> no doubt. The idea of kingdom was rich in their history. 
God's place in that kingdom that he had called them to be a people. You know, it was a, it was a geographical location uh, where, where they belonged. It was a place of safety and security. That's what a kingdom meant. A certain way in which relationships with others would be lived as they, as they shared in this kingdom, life together in this kingdom. Uh, there were rules in a kingdom that, that governed the way of life. And, and they were living under rules as they lived under the Romans, but that was not what they wanted. Those, those were not godly rules. There were rulers, certainly. Citizens who had to give attention to those rulers, law and order. In a good kingdom, there was justice and consequences for bad behavior. Uh, there were obligations and taxes protection for citizens, in, in a lot of ways, not hugely different from our understanding of life in the country, life in a state, life where we live under authorities, ruling structures. There was just one significant difference, and that was what? What they didn't have for many years. A king. A king. The clue is in the word. Kingdom. Yeah. It was about the king. Kingdoms have kings, which makes a kingdom strikingly different from the function, certainly, of the government in our country and many countries in the world. In a kingdom, the king is in charge. When Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he doesn't have a democracy in mind. God is in charge. There is no question in the mind and the heart of Jesus. God's authority is not questioned, at least not without severe consequences. In a kingdom, the king's rule is not up for election. There are no term limits. The way that the king determines life will be lived is how life will be lived. It is expected that the citizens of the kingdom will obey and not question the king's orders. In other words, the life and the happiness of citizens of a kingdom are not determined by a vote. They are determined by the edict of the king, take it or leave it. Good king equals good life. Bad king equals bad life. The mindset that comes with being citizens of a kingdom is vastly different than the mindset that comes in a country where we are blessed with enormous freedoms and have opportunity to chart the future and the direction of where we go. A kingdom is ruled by a king. And that's what Jesus has in mind when he talks about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. The life and the well-being of the people of a kingdom depends upon the nature and the will of the king. Now the question that is that is much discussed amongst New Testament scholars is 
<clears throat> the location of the kingdom, is it a spiritual reality? Is, it, is the kingdom of heaven located somewhere? The, the present reality of the kingdom versus the future reality of the kingdom of God. Some see a distinction between the usage of those two phrases, kingdom of God versus kingdom of heaven. One implying a place, not exclusively a location, and the ruler of that place. The other thinking more in terms of a place of the future, a future place for those of us who are still living. Now, there's good news for you this morning. We're not going to talk about all those perspectives because it would be like trying to get a drink out of a fire hose in terms of the time that we have just to hit Matthew on on Sunday. And and I'm just going to be perfectly honest with you. I don't think the distinction is that clear, and frankly, I don't know that it matters all that much. Jesus, I think, blurs them together in a way that is really important for us to attend to. You remember last week we looked at Paul's exhortation to Titus that he should teach the Cretans to live in such a way as to make the gospel attractive. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing as he lived his life under the rule of his Father, living out the values of the kingdom and calling others to do the same. Now, we need to remember that not everyone thinks it's attractive. It's so important to remember that. You know, as we live out the values of the kingdom of God, not everybody's going to love us. Many will think that we're idiots. And in countries around the world, we have brothers and sisters who are persecuted every day, even as they seek to live faithfully and make the gospel attractive. It's not in the hearts and minds of certain people. Some people find it repulsive. That is not our problem. It presents problems, But that is not our problem. It is God's problem. When Jesus taught his followers to pray, Father, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, he was teaching them to pray, I believe, something that could only be accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit living in them after Pentecost, thus demonstrating by the way that they lived to everyone who encountered them, that life in the kingdom of God is hugely different than any kingdom that they had ever experienced in this world. And people were invited to repent. Remember what that word meant? Change, turn, repent, and do what? Live life in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, so that they would experience the blessing of the life that they were created to live. I love what D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says about the kingdom now and the kingdom in the future. He says this, It is a kingdom which is to come, yes, but it is also a kingdom which has come. Jesus said, The kingdom of God is among you. Jesus also said, The kingdom of God is within you. So the kingdom of God, says Jones, is in every true Christian. God reigns in the church when the church acknowledges him truly. The kingdom has come. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom is yet to come. 
We must always bear that in mind. So let's stand together and read a text that uh, makes a mention of the kingdom. Not from Matthew. I hope you'll forgive me for that. This is coming from Colossians because I love the way that Paul ends this text. Paul begins his letter to the Colossians with great excitement, enthusiasm, and joy because they've responded to the gospel and, and their others are, are hearing about their faith in Christ and it's producing fruit in their lives. And having said all this, then he writes together, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, so that you may have great endurance and patience, and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And all God's people said, Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Isn't that amazing? God has qualified us to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. (laughs) As Rick Baldacci loves to ask, what kind of a God is this? Incredible God. For he has rescued us, says Paul, from the dominion of darkness, brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. There's that conflict of the kingdoms that Matthew presents. He's brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Wow. The kingdom of God is different from any kingdom anywhere because God is at the center of that kingdom. God is the ruler, and God is the life in the kingdom of God. And the life that happens in his kingdom is life that flows from the character of God. Whether it's life in the kingdom here and now as God's people are surrendered to the Spirit and living in the power of God's Spirit so that the values of the kingdom of God are produced in us or whether it's in the kingdom of heaven someday in eternity where we will be as followers of the Lord Jesus, God's character is the factor both here and now and then. It's a kingdom where the king is a father to the citizens of the kingdom. We read that often this week in Matthew. God is a father to those who live in his kingdom. Matthew records Jesus using the phrase father in heaven or heavenly father over 20 times. When Jesus exhorts his followers in Matthew 6 
not to worry and run after those things that the pagans worry about and run after. What is the reason that he gives? Your heavenly Father knows that you need these things. Seek first his kingdom. Seek first the life that he has brought to you as being citizens of his kingdom. In other words, give yourselves on this earth now to living out life as citizens of the kingdom of God, who is your heavenly Father. And what is that going to look like? Well, as one commentator I read this week says, the kingdom of God that has come in the Lord Jesus is radically different from the way you and I naturally think and act. And it's different from the way that we structure society. So God is at the center of the kingdom of God. He is the object. He is the life. He is the purpose that lies behind the kingdom. And so as members of that kingdom... It seems to me that our hearts and our attentions are going to think often of God. As citizens of his kingdom, the Spirit of God will will push us and remind us and encourage us and prompt us to think often of the one whose kingdom this is in which we live. God is at the center of the kingdom of God. But the values, the values of the kingdom. Well, you read about a lot of those this week in Matthew as well. Let me me give some, some descriptions. I like what one commentator says about the inbreaking of the kingdom of God that has come in the Lord Jesus. It's radically different from the way you and I naturally think and act. The Beatitudes, read through those in Matthew this week, gives us an image of those who are blessed. It's just the opposite of what we would naturally value. Those who are blessed in the kingdom of God, they are poor in spirit. They are persecuted. They they mourn. They are meek. The parables of the kingdom that that Jesus speaks. They paint for us pictures where where debtors are freely forgiven. Those with huge debts are freely forgiven. Where, Where the smallest seed produces the largest tree. Where the last come workers receive the same reward. Ever read that story? The manager that goes out and hires workers in his vineyard and he gives exactly what he has promised to give. They all got the same. Those who had slaved for eight hours and those who had slaved for one. And there's something about that that really bugs me. That's not fair in my mind. That is God's grace at work in the lives 
of people who don't deserve it. Whether they have worked all day long or whether they have only worked a part of the day, whether they have lived a long life and suddenly that rascal breathes a deathbed confession and I think he's on his way to heaven. And it's just not right. I've spent my life slaving for the kingdom of God. Boy, the values in the kingdom of God are sure different. Jesus' model of life shows an open-armed compassion for those who are left out of society. He touches lepers. He brings children into the midst of theological discussions and says, learn from them. Unless you have faith like they do, you're never going to see the kingdom of heaven. Jesus welcomed Gentiles. He listened for the blind and the lepers who were calling out for him. And as king of the universe, Jesus enters Jerusalem not on a war horse or a golden chariot, but riding a donkey. What kind of a king is that? Well, it's, it's the king. The king who can be humble because the power of the universe resides in him. And as king of all, he willingly rides into the city where iron nails will soon be used to to hang him on a cross. And as this king instructs us, we learn that one who wants to be first should not exercise an overbearing leadership style, but, but should be the slave of all. Oof. The one who's blessed by God with material wealth, that person should set it aside to follow Christ. The one who desires to save his life must in fact die. This is the radical nature of the vision of the kingdom that Jesus gives. I hope that that reading through Matthew this week has, has helped remind you, as it has me, that there is a fundamental error that floats around, I think, in, in the Christian church these days, at least in some places. And, and that error is that a person accepts Jesus into their life and they are saved. I really did say that. I know that sounded like heresy. I really did say that. Let me expand. First of all, I think we need to be really cautious about the language that we use because I don't see anywhere in Scripture that it talks about accepting Jesus. Accepting Jesus, it does speak of God accepting us based upon what Jesus did for us on the cross and His righteousness then is appropriated in us through repentance and faith in what God has done for us. Make sense? So far so good? And second, I think that that salvation shows itself 
in a life that is empowered by the Spirit of God, giving evidence of the values of the kingdom that are taught and modeled by Jesus. And a couple of Sundays ago, I stood right here and said, I don't want to preach a legalism. And I hope that that's not what you hear me saying. You know, legalism is when we are attending to those things that others say are important for our salvation. I think a life surrendered to the kingship of God is a life that gives attention to how Jesus has lived and to what Jesus has taught. And there's a big difference. And it's not going to look the same in every person because the Spirit is the one who is at work in those times. And He is at work differently in our lives depending on our circumstances and our struggles and the things that we are wrestling with. But remember, where it starts is that word repent. Change course. That's what the Spirit will speak into our lives, whether it be in just a a small way or an enormous way. And our willingness to listen and to follow the voice of the Spirit, I think, is indication of our understanding of the glorious kingdom in which we are citizens. It is lived in response our lives, lived in response to what Christ has done. He's rescued us from the domain of darkness, according to Paul in his letter to the Colossians, and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves. And the Son he loves walked the face of this earth in order to demonstrate to us what life this new life in the kingdom will look like for us as individuals, for us as a group of God's people, living life under the lordship of God, empowered by the Spirit, modeled by Jesus, taught by Jesus, so that the world looks at us and says one of two things. They are some of the weirdest people I've ever known because they just don't do things normally, or they look at us and say, wow, that's impressive. I'd like to know more. That's the attractiveness of the gospel as the Spirit of God is at work in the lives of people. Oh, brothers and sisters, the kingdom of God, what an amazing place to be living. What a scary place, challenging place to be living as we, as we trust the one who has called us to live there. Not only for the here and now, for the, for the future. I guess that's really where I would like to grow most in my life. Maybe you can relate. I'm confident about the future. It's what comes before then that worries me. You know? We die, those of us who are followers of Jesus, we're confident about where we're going. It's what leads me to that point of dying that makes me a little nervous sometimes. Can you relate? Man. Man. Well, praise team, come on up this morning and let me close with a story from Randy Alcorn. Uh, Some of you may know 
he has written a, just a, a wonderful uh, classic book on, on heaven. I would encourage you to read it sometime. Um, anyway, he tells of a mission trip that he took to Egypt a number of years ago. And he says while there, his, his host took him to visit an abandoned graveyard that was located at the end of a garbage-lined alley. And the host pointed out one tombstone in particular. It was the tombstone of William Borden. Borden lived from 1887 to 1913, and he was heir to the Borden Dairy Estate. He was a millionaire by age 21. But he renounced his fortune, giving nearly all of his wealth to missions. His heart's desire was to take the gospel to Muslims in China. And on his way to China, William stopped in Egypt to study Arabic. But four months later, he contracted spinal meningitis and he died at the age of 25. Alcorn writes this, I dusted off the inscription on the headstone of Borden's grave. And after describing his love for Christ and his commitment to and his love for the Muslim people, and his sacrifices for God's kingdom, the inscription ended with some words that I wrote down, and I have never forgotten them to this day. The inscription ended with these words, Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. And then Alcorn says, I immediately thought to myself, And Lord, What is the explanation for my life? Amen.